0: Other problem is the fatalism of saying it can't be done, shikata ganai. It's never going to happen. And excess fatalism is just as corrosive as irrational exuberance. One of the biggest obstacles to doing what needs to be done is the feeling we tried several times and failed.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Lydia Bukomen. This podcast is for those who want to develop or strengthen the communication skills, cultural savvy, insights into current trends and conditions, and mindsets that are essential in a Japanese business environment. The helpful, practical suggestions and engaging insights offered here provide listeners with the in-depth cultural context needed to achieve their own version of success while collaborating with Japanese counterparts. In today's episode, I'm very excited to share a conversation I had with Richard Katz. Richard has worked for decades as a journalist working on the Japanese economy, and he has written two books on Japan, The System That Soured and The Japanese Phoenix. He is now working on a third about how to nurture a new generation of high-growth, innovative, small, and medium enterprises in Japan. He's published various op-eds and essays in publications such as Foreign Affairs, The Financial Times, Toyo Keizai, and the Wall Street Journal Asia.
0: I'm Richard Katz. I'm the New York City correspondent for Weekly Toyo Keizai, which is one of the three leading business magazines in Japan. Uh, I've written a couple of books on Japan. I've been just working on Japan for the past 40 or more years. And I've written a new book, which we're now hunting for a publisher, on reviving entrepreneurship in Japan. And I say reviving because it was entrepreneurship in the Meiji era and in the post-World War II era. It was the uh, entrepreneurship in the Meiji era and the post-World War II era, which really created those economic miracles. So we're not talking about grafting onto Japan something different. We're talking about reviving something that the Japanese have done before and could do again.
1: That sounds very interesting. I hope that things work out with the publisher soon, because I would love to read it. Yeah. But... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> So why Japan? Why did you decide to focus your work on Japan specifically?
0: Oh, because in my younger days, I was Christopher Columbus. I headed out to some, one place and I found myself in a different place and somebody else paid for it, which in my case was scholarship money to go to college. I was interested in European history. I was part of the anti-Vietnam War movement and there were no courses at Columbia on Vietnam. But there was a two-part seminar on China and Japan. At that point, all I knew of Japan is when my parents as a kid would buy me a toy, three days later it would break, That I knew it was made in Japan. So that's the image of Japan back then. And Japan taking this course seemed the most fascinating country. It was so dramatic. It was up, it was down, it was up again, it was down again. It had Avoided being colonized by the Europeans in the 19th century, only Japan and, and Thailand succeeded in that. The U.S.-Japan trade wars were breaking out, uh, so there's just all sorts of you know tremendous interest on my part in it, and so I got captured. And it's sort of like asking, you know, how do you fall in love with your spouse? You have no idea, but there's something very intriguing about that topic or that person. Yeah, and I still find it endlessly fascinating.
1: Yeah, I would hope so. <laughs> But there's always more to learn or more yes. depth to gain from any country. But yeah, it's also interesting that you pointed out how back in mm-hmm. the day, Japan was known for cheap manufacturing, whereas nowadays it's kind of famous for its quality and its attention to detail. So it's interesting to see how things have changed.
0: Yes. And people, people above, below a certain age have no memory of when it was regarded as producing shoddy stuff. But people also below a certain younger age have no impression of when Japan, you know, was considered this dynamo that was going to, you know, take over the world economically. So the images of Japan, as well as the reality, keep changing from generation to generation.
1: So then... We had been talking and we kind of wanted to take a different structure for today's conversation. We wanted to zoom out a little bit. So, a lot of the conversations on this podcast tend to revolve around very specific things to do with doing business in Japan or establishing yourself in Japan, coping with the work culture in Japan. But today, Mr. Katz wanted to kind of highlight the mega trends that are kind of underlying Japan. And they're based on almost the culmination of the work he's been doing so far. So why do you think people should take the time to look at these megatrends instead of kind of getting caught in the weeds like many of the conversations we've been having here?
0: Well, I I think you need both forest and trees. And if you don't have both, you don't really know what's going on. But I do think that, you know, Japan has been caught in three lost decades in a row economically. And it's really a tragedy because it would not have to make that much change in order to thrive again. But so far, mainly because of the political situation and lack of leadership, it has, it has failed to do so. Uh, the problems, in my view, are eminently solvable. And the question is, what's the likelihood of them occurring? What would have to occur? In my view, in, in every country that grows, you have entrepreneurship is one of the key ingredients you know you it's it's often companies as they get older and older sort of get set in their ways as with as two people and in vibrant countries you have uh companies replacing each other so for example look at the top couple dozen electronics hardware in the United States a third of them didn't even exist a couple decades ago Others exist, but they were small. They weren't even the Fortune 500. If you look at Japan, it's the same two dozen electronic hardware companies that were the top two dozen 30 or 40 years ago are still the top two dozen. And yet they've all lost sales. The top 10, every single one of them has lost sales in the last 15 years. Uh, Sony, which used to put out must have product after must have product, uh, was terrific in the analog era. It failed to adjust, it tried, failed to adjust to the digital era and could not come up with revolutionary products that people really wanted to buy. And so, yes, it's still a big company, it's still around. This is typical of what happens to so-called elephants, these decades old giant firms. Uh, you know, General Motors is still around, but it's not set the trend in automaking. IBM is still around, but it does not set the trend in computers. Sony, again, the same, the same thing. So if Japan is to revive overall, Part of the recipe has got to be a revival of entrepreneurship, where new companies, new challengers can replace some of the old, older, once superb firms that have grown kind of stale. And so, well, if you look at the top, what's going on in terms of top politics, elite business thinking, there seems to be a lot of stasis. There doesn't seem to be a lot of motion. But if you look underneath the surface of society, there's a number of these trends, which I think are changing things. And have the potential, no certainty to be sure, but have the potential of really coming to fruition, reaching critical mass, and therefore helping Japan uh, revive. And that's one of these things in doing the research for this book. You know, I just learned all kinds of stuff. I was like a kid in a candy store. There's just so much interesting stuff going on in Japan. And so many smart people in Japan writing about it that uh, most Japanese, not to mention most Americans, are really unaware of it.
1: Especially if it's your own country, it can be very easy to overlook (laughs) things that are changing. It's almost the boiling frog situation where you don't really notice what's going on until it's almost too late. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. That's one of the good things about learning about another country is you actually understand your own country Mm -hmm. a lot better.
1: Definitely. Especially when it comes to culture, at least in my experience. So let's just dive right into these six megatrends then. I'm really excited for this conversation and learning more about them. The first one I wanted to highlight here was the shift in generational attitudes. So kind of the difference in ways of thinking between the different generations in Japan. Could you break that down a little bit for us?
0: Sure. You know, people have this image that you know, Japanese are conformists, Japanese don't want to fight the crowd, they would rather choose security over, say, freedom or, or independence or making their own way. And and a lot of these are sort of either cultural myths altogether or are products of a certain time and place. And one of the myths is, you know, Japanese, they all want to work for big prestigious companies no one wants to take a chance in starting their own company, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, it's really not true. It's a product of certain circumstances. One interesting thing was I've done this for years, meeting, you know, at, at, in groups, these young um women, career women, you know, Tokyo-based or you know, Osaka-based. And I asked them, in terms of your hopes and dreams, ambitions, frustrations, are you more like your grandmother or more like your counterpart in New York City? And they all say, Oh, my counterpart in New York City. And so there is this general change, and culture is sort of you know how culture manifests itself and behavior really does change from generation to generation. So one of those guys I was talking to, he runs a private equity firm, was saying, you know, in my grandparents' generation, just after World War II, you know, they had a, they went to school without shoes, many of them. For them, a a secure permanent job at a company with a decent salary was nirvana. That was great. In my father's generation, it was boring. Now Japan was no longer poor, had reached a certain level of affluence, and they didn't like the job, and they were bored with it, and they weren't challenged by it, and they were very, very frustrated by it, but yet they felt there was no other choice. This was all they could do, and they were very frustrated people in that way. So now in my generation, not the majority, but people, more, more and more of a thin minority are people who are willing to sort of Switch jobs, people who are especially the skills in high demand, like people in information technology, will even become consultants self-employed and not even have a permanent job, but that's by choice, as opposed to the part-timers who, who have no choice. And so you've gotten generationally at both ends, you've gotten people who've gotten more conservative because the times seem so insecure, but you've gotten a thin and growing slice of people who were saying, yeah, I'm willing to work for a company uh, and switch companies. Uh, one company I know for this, they were hiring a bunch of mid-career people in, in digital marketing because their in-house people didn't have these skills. And there's one guy who'd worked there for several years and they gave him a, a good salary. And he came to the president and about a 200 person company said, this is great. I uh, thank you for, I love working here. And now I'm on to my next job. I heard them say, wait, wait a minute. We gave you a chase about money. Cause no, no, no money's great. He said, well, why are you, why are you leaving us? He, 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 you know, uh, We gave you a chance. We, we, we trained you. We did this. He says, yes, and thank you very much. I'm very grateful. He says, so then why are you leaving? He said, well, this was a t- terrific adventure. Now I want my next adventure. And so people don't think of it. And if you and so what they, where that shows up is uh, among people who came to adulthood, let's say after 1990, a, particularly those who, who have a, uh say the highest 20% in education and talent and stuff, the, the, their willingness and actual carrying out of sw- job switching or even starting companies is much higher than a previous generation. Attitudes toward gender relations, which is a second mega trend, are very, very different generationally. And so people feel very, very frustrated. And so companies themselves have had to respond by accepting more mid-career hires, particularly in areas where there's a skill shortage. And so I think all sorts of attitudes that people have are are very different generationally and that has effects on all kinds of, of parameters of Japanese life.
1: Yeah and especially from the perspective of Americans It makes a lot of sense thinking back to World War II. I'm currently reading a book called Embracing Defeat about post-World War II Japan and everything that they endured in that time period and just the prolonged economic issues and suffering that, of course, in the States, we had our own hardships during World War II, but we never encountered this prolonged occupation after and the economic prolonged suffering for the population there. So it does make more sense in context, looking at maybe to Americans, it might seem like clinging to something that doesn't exist anymore, but it makes more sense when you see how that wasn't really that long ago, that sort of economic situation where having security was the ultimate goal, (laughs) and having economic security especially. So just moving along because I wanna make sure that we can cover everything today. Can you tell us a little bit about the issue of the aging population in Japan? It is a topic that we've covered a couple of times, but would you mind breaking it down a little bit more for us?
0: Sure. Uh, And again, let me do this in the context of, because I'll have all sorts of ramifications of the aging. It produces stresses in political system. If you spend the money to support the aged, and you're going to tax the people, working age people, produces those sorts of conflicts. But in the context of economic recovery and entrepreneurship, you know, one of the things to look at is you've got about 600,000 healthy, profitable, small and medium companies, which are in danger of going bankrupt, not because they're in trouble, but because the owner is 65 or 70 or 75 years old and their kids <clears throat> Again, part of the generational change, their kids don't want to take over. Whereas in the past, it would be, you know, this is my business, you're going to take over. And it was just given as a matter of course, you would take over. Now the kid doesn't want to take over, uh, male or female. And they have to find a successor. And because of things going on in the banking situation, and it's involved in what's called personal guarantee, you know, it's it's hard to find someone who's willing to take on that debt to the bank and guarantee their, their house. The firstborn, whatever if, 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 the, if the company fails. Well, these older companies, first of all, there are about six hundred thousand which are in risk of going under in the next five or ten years, and it's up to you know five or six million jobs that are at risk, and so that's a tremendous drag on the economy. The other thing with the demographics is that if you look at the performance of companies led by an older person, they're they're much they're really inferior to performance of someone who's led by a person in their 40s and 50s. And one reason is again, the stability versus choice issue, which is that the person who's older is not thinking about where do I want the company to be in 20 years? He's thinking about how do I make sure the company survives when I pass from the scene, either through death or retirement, so that my 50 employees don't lose their jobs, so the company survives. And he's thinking if I make this big investment and it doesn't work out, what's the risk if I do that? Whereas somebody who's who's younger is thinking, well, one is where do I want the company to be in 20 years? But secondly, what's the risk if I don't make that investment and I fall behind my competitors? It's a different, assess, different perception of where the risk is. And I know a case where it was a metallurgical firm, had an older employee, the, he wanted to retire and have his plant manager, his 43 year old, take over. The plant manager said, I'd like to do it, but I can't take on this personal guarantee for all the debt the company owes, that I lose everything if there's a, there's a problem. Well, the private equity, for, Japanese private equity firm bought the firm. They made this 43 year old the CEO. In four years, they tripled their sales, they quadrupled their profits. And the way they did it was they invested a lot of money in new, most modern machinery and in capacity expansion. And all these banks that didn't want to lend to the company without a personal guarantee, which is too risky for the borrower, suddenly they were falling all over themselves to lend to this company because it was a private equity firm that was that had vouched for it. And so it got the finance to be able to do it. And the mindset of the 43 year old was, I say, quite, quite different. So what we really need is a, is a vehicle you know improvements in finance and other things which allows this generational change in in ownership the other side of the coin is that you know a lot of companies people have to retire at age 60 well 60 is 60 is the new 50 you know people aren't <clears throat> as old as they used to be at age 60 they don't want to retire but they have to retire and you have this incredible wasted resources which is all kinds of people who may not be visionaries, but they have experience in how do you, the ABCs of how you manage company. One of the biggest problem of of new companies is you get people who've got vision, but they really lack managerial skills. And if they could hire these people as consultants and in various ways, that would be a tremendous, tremendous help to these new companies getting off the ground. And it's really a wasted resources of sort of the, the younger elderly. So uh, they're not really older. They're just sort of really upper, upper middle age. But it, it's a tremendous, the people 60 to 65 retire managers. That's a tremendous waste of resources. So the demographic issue is really a double-edged sword. It, it really hurt in many ways. It, it's, it makes the need for reform even greater, but it makes it more difficult to actually implement the reform. And it does create these political fissures, which, again, make the need for reform more
1: manifest. No, oh, that's fascinating. Do you see any of these changes in finance or in hiring practices or even maybe, I don't know how to articulate this, but maybe having recruiters that specialize in these experienced, older, middle-aged individuals who (laughs) could do great consulting work or or kind of managerial work coming into companies, is anything happening on that front or are these still more just ideas that kind of need to take root?
0: Well, on the issue of mid-career hires, which is, you know, the traditional problem was that if you, if you quit a good job to take a job in a startup and it fails, as most startups do, you'll never get a good job again of that type. Well, that's changing. And, And, and so mid the labor market is becoming much more, much more fluid. So that's a good thing. There are a whole bunch of consulting firms that are growing up in Japan. On all sorts of areas, for example, information technology, which even big companies don't really use it to their best advantage, but small and medium, there's a huge digital divide. And so it's all sorts of consulting companies. Your question's a good one, and I've not actually looked at it as yet, is whether among these consulting companies there are there are people who say, okay, let's let's take these people who have retired and looking for their second job. And you know, so a lot of them start mom and pop shops, but let's let's utilize them. I suspect there are, and it's one of these things that people have not yet really written about. I suspect also it's something getting off the ground. It is not yet some mass thing. But this is one of these under-the-surface trends that people have not looked at. And the question always is, is that just the exception that proves the rule and makes money for those particular companies but does not turn the, the ship, big ship of Japan around? Or is it the harbinger of a broader trend? And that that I simply don't don't know, mm-hmm. but it's it's absolutely one of the things to look at.
1: Moving on to another trend, which is issues surrounding gender in Japanese society.
0: Sure. Well, one of the biggest things, you know, you walk into a new Japanese company and even not so new, but something that they started in the last 10 or 20 years, that was a growth company. And one of the things you find when you walk in, besides sort of the buzz of excitement which you don't really see it, so these older, stodger companies or people a little jaded and frustrated, is the the huge number of women working there and in managerial posts. And the reason is because women womenomics was a fraud. I mean, it was false advertising. There was a lot of promises made and not kept. Women simply do not get promoted in the same way that men do, and they set quotas. The quota that Shinzo Abe set in two thousand thirteen, for I think it was. 20% of managers being women it was the same thing that Koizumi had goal. he said 20 years earlier, and it's not happening. Women, when they do reach, uh, say, the Akacho level of, man- of manager or section head, they're much older than the men were. And, and once you reach a certain age, you're less likely to found a startup. And so what's happened is bright, ambitious women, educated women, who are feeling very frustrated are flocking to both foreign companies but also newer companies where they really have a chance to to move to the top of, of the ladder. Um, There's a case. Uh, There's a, a a company called Oskul, and you know it started. It was a small four-person division of a, of a uh, office supplies company, and people, both men and women, had joined it from larger companies. One guy who's now a manager there was from Itochi, which was much much bigger. There's another woman who was from a convenience store chain. And she went to it, and they both went to it because they wanted to get on the ground floor of a growing company. But the woman that I'm speaking of felt, well, she had an opportunity to climb the managerial ladder that she never would have had at this more traditional company. And what happened was in 1986, Japan promulgated the equal opportunity law, which promised women equal opportunity in employment, including promotion, including whether you're pregnant or not. Uh, but there's no agency in Japan in charge of actually enforcing the law in the way that there's an agency in charge of a financial services agency in charge of making sure that financial services companies, banks and insurers and investment banks follow the law. There isn't nobody. So companies just do not promote women. And despite all the talk of change, there's been very you know some change, yes, but, but nowhere near what, what was promised or expected. And so these women who had previously gone to these two-year universities, where you get your MRS degree, you know, all the skills you need to be a good wife, started flocking to four universities, four-year universities, in expectation of being able to get the jobs. They didn't get the jobs. So here they're very educated. And there's this huge gap between their ambitions and their talents on the one hand, and the ability to realize it, which created a tremendous amount of frustration. It also was one of the things that led women to marry later, because they want to get that career in and not get fired or have fewer children when they do get married. Women repeatedly say they'd love to get married at a certain age, say 25, and have two kids. They get married at 29 and have one kid. It's not their first choice. It's what's on the menu of possibilities. And so <clears throat> there's a lot of frustration. And people do find that in these newer companies, they have more of a chance. And I think that is one of the really big societal trends that's going to affect a lot a lot of things that I think we're only beginning to see the ramifications of it. We've not yet seen it really in politics, but I think we will. Eventually gender gaps in voting and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But that's, yeah, that's a very, and also means for the companies, traditionally one of the biggest problems in starting a company is being able to get skilled people at all, entry level and managerial level and, and scientists, et cetera. And so a lot of these companies, are able to hire a lot of these very talented, skilled women because, you know, they're going to want to promote them. other companies won't. And so they really have an opportunity to find people. So the need of women for good jobs and new startups for good people is sort of meshing. And it's one of these trends that people haven't looked at, but it's a a situation that did not exist 20 years ago and opens opens up possibilities for the broader economy that just simply did not exist 20 years ago.
1: You mentioned that women just get promoted at older ages. Does that have more to do, in your opinion, does that have more to do with the types of jobs that women are hired for in the first place, the track they get funneled into once they're in the company, or what causes that? Because these older, more traditional Japanese companies are kind of notorious for promoting just based on length of service. So how do women fall behind in a system that in theory they're supposed to just be shuffled along based on length of tenure?
0: Well, one is that, you know, I think something like 50%, 57% of women employees, I have to go check, make sure that's accurate, But I think some are, are non-regular employees. So they're not gonna have a chance of promotion anyway. And they don't, and they didn't take it because that's what, it used to be women who would have jobs, get married, have kids, the kids have grown to a certain age, they go back to work, and they and they wanted to take part-time jobs because they also want to raise the kids. Or after the kids have grown up, you know, they were quite happy to do so. This is a case of what jobs are, being, are out there, are being offered. And the same thing is true for men to a lesser degree. One of the ways the companies responded to the equal opportunity law was to create these two different tracks. And one was sort of the promotion track, the elite career track, that was sort of what's called the clerical track, which became nicknamed the mommy track. Because the career track was overwhelmingly men and the, the clerical track was overwhelmingly women. But most of it is simple, simply prejudice. If you look at the jobs that women have, if you look at their career, if you look at all of these things, maternity leave, all, all sorts of issues, and you separate that out, you're still left with about 40 50% of the gap in wages and the gap of employment having to do with sheer prejudice of what jobs do they get, what promotion levels do they get. And then people find excuses to do it. So for example, there's the loss is equal pay for equal work. Well, you tweak the job in some little tiny way. You say, well, it's actually a different job. And when you go to court, now there's no, again, no agency enforced with, with inf, no agency mandated to enforce these laws. So the victim has got to sue, whether it be a man or a woman, the victim of pay discrimination or promotion discrimination has got to spend them with time and money to sue themselves and the courts have almost overwhelmingly agreed with the companies oh yeah it's a different job because you know you do x on a thursday instead of wednesday and there are lawyers who just you know instruct companies how to tweak it so they'll pass muster. i spoke to one lawyer in the rare he always who always represents the employers and he's only lost one case on the sequel pay thing and he said, when he did, the company went back to him and said, well, okay, how do we tweak the job now to make a difference so we can now resume? And also, people promote the people that they want to work with. And so a lot of it's very, very subjective. And, I mean, Japan is certainly not the only country which is, is true, but it is true. Other countries have moved earlier and faster toward changing. Japan is really one of the biggest Laggards, things are changing, but very slowly, and far, far behind the rest of the of the rich countries, and it's basically simply prejudice. You know, companies that say we have higher, know, few women say we we don't have any qualified women. It's 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 a big deal.
1: Could spend a whole episode just talking about that, but <laughs> for Good. now, we'll just move on to the next mega trend, which is globalization.
0: Sure. Now, this is this is really interesting. This is one which was more prominent in terms of its absence in Japan. You know, when I went to Berlin to look at at some of the newer companies there, one of the things that really shocked me was I remember one company in particular. This is a German company, a Berlin-based company, that the top managers are are, are Germans, but. The staff was from all over Western and Eastern Europe, with a few North Americans thrown in. English was the common language, and which is, I guess, is good for Americans who don't, you know, only speak one language. But it was incredibly cosmopolitan, and I realize you you never find that in Japan. Now you you don't find it as much in the U.S. either, for you know various reasons. We don't have, you know, I think a 200 miles cir- circle around Hamburg. There's like 20 countries. Right. Whereas 200 miles around Detroit, you got one country, you know, and it's it's not that different. And it makes a difference because people from different countries have different ways of doing things and different ideas. It doesn't necessarily mean that all of their ideas are better, but you get a variety of ideas to choose from. You have cross fertilization of ideas. So in Japan, what you lack is executives at companies, employees at companies, that sort of thing. You, you uh, On the other hand, if you look at things like the ratio of trade to GDP, that has really increased in Japan a lot in the last twenty or thirty years. So Japan is much more open to products from foreign countries. You go to an office and you'll see row after row of say Dell computers. You will see you'll see Windows on machines because you know Japan has not developed its own you know software you know software system. For, for PCs, because, you know, and you see the proprietary system, you see that not enough foreign companies working on Japanese soil out of 196 countries, Japan came in 196th, just behind North Korea in the ratio of what's called foreign direct investment, which is companies either, you know, foreign direct, inward foreign direct investment on Japanese soil, which means either Japanese foreign companies setting up a new plant or store or whatever, or else buying a Japanese company and and making it better. And countries improve from that. So globalization is a trend that is improving productivity, sharing technology all over the world. And while it's happening to some degree in Japan, it's happening much more slowly and Japan is at a loss because of it. And again, one of the techniques, uh, and I think there'll be pressure for this is, If you look at software engineers, just regular run-of-the-mill software engineers, Japan has a few hundred thousand fewer engineers, qualified engineers than its companies actually need. By five or six or seven years from now, media says it's gonna be more than a half a million. Now that means that companies can't do what they ought to do. And while everybody's getting fascinated with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and blockchain and artificial intelligence, that's all fine and well and good, but you got to walk before you run. And if you don't have the basics, someone can invent a great AI stuff, but if you don't have people at the companies who know how to use it, what good is it? <clears throat> and so I think what's going to happen is that not only do the fewer the, the, the people who are have this, this expertise, the software engineers in Japan, command higher wages, be able to switch jobs, but Japan's going to have to import import a lot of software engineers from other countries, or also simply will not be able to, the big companies are going to have to operate overseas where they can hire such people. How is Sony or Panasonic or Hitachi or any of these people going to do well globally? And these companies do depend on global markets. How are from the Japanese base if they can't hire the kind of people they need to hire? So I think the pressure for globalization to do more globalization, as well as the changes that have already occurred because of globalization, are going to become increasingly powerful over the coming decade. And Japan really has to catch up. If it doesn't, it's it's not going to revive. And one of the things I noticed is that when you look at the people who founded some of these new companies, a disproportionate number of them have... Some kind of international experience. Mikitani at Rakuten. His father did he teach at Harvard or Yale? I think he taught. I forget. He taught at Harvard or Yale, and Mikitani went to Harvard Business School. Zozotown. He lived in 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 Stanford, San Francisco, for for some years. So a guy who formed another company, uh, Uglena. It's called. Had gone to Stanford, and if and when he had his idea for a new product, people said you should you should start your own company to do it. Whereas if he stayed in Japan, it would not have occurred to him, but in Stanford, everybody's trying to start a company. And so you see among those people who start companies and the ones that really succeed and do well, they have an awful lot more international experience than the people who don't. And it's not just that ideas from elsewhere are better, some are, some are not. I mean, there was people in America benefit, the auto companies in America did better when the Japanese companies came here because they learn things from the Japanese company. The point is to be exposed to a variety of ideas and be able to pick from the world's best. And you don't have that unless you have a constant interaction. And Japan simply does not have enough of that. It's getting more and that's creating pressures and that's a good thing, but it's it's one of the subterranean trends which will which we'll need to grow. It's grown somewhat, but not enough. And all around the world, globalization is changing how people think and do things. Yeah. Sometimes not for the better, but uh, in a lot of ways, yes.
1: That's for sure. Yeah. But moving into Would the next it. mega trend, could you tell us a little bit about, more about the technological change specifically, digital transformation? You alluded to that in globalization just because they're so tightly interlinked, but could you tell us a little bit more about that sure. specifically?
0: Sure. So there are two things. One is that when you have a change in technological regime, it really requires new business institutions, institutions all over the place. People, I think, underestimate how much technology changes social life. So for example, before the advent of the railroad, clocks, a clock in Kansas City, Missouri and Kansas City, Kansas would not necessarily read the same time, They could be 10, 15 minutes apart. There was no need for everybody to have accurate timepieces. But when the railroads began and you had to get on the railroad to schedule, People had to set their watches to the to the time that the railroad kept. It was called railroad time. The suburbs came about because of, of railroads. Light bulb created nightlife, the, the notion of nightlife in a way that had never existed before. One of my favorites is the interaction between the transistor and Elvis Presley. What the transistor did was it liberated t- teenagers from control of their parents around the radio. Because we used to have, right, you have this big radio. It was plugged into the wall, like the TV was plugged into the wall, right? And the parents therefore held control of the plug. With a transistor radio, the kids could go out and, you know, watch whatever they listen to, whatever they wanted to listen to. But they wouldn't buy it if there was nothing worth listening to. And then there was Elvis. So Elvis was kind of the killer app for the transistor radio. And neither would have grown up without the other. And it's this fascinating interaction. Well, the, Jap- the big Japanese companies grew up in the, in the analog age, in which leading edge of competition was big, huge giants with very, very deep financial pockets. Most research and development was being business, and business was being done by companies with at least twenty five thousand people. They were both integrated vertically and horizontally. It was the, big, the big horizontal kretsu and the vertical corporate groups. So they tried to do everything by themselves, from soup to nuts. They didn't use outside skills, they pride themselves. We're not gonna use that because we didn't invent it. Mm. Well, in the analog era, it's a whole different thing. You know, we think of giant companies like Amazon, but you know, Amazon did not invent Alexa. It was actually invented by a smaller company that worked with Amazon, same with Gmail. Pfizer, the Pfizer vaccine was actually invented by a German startup created in Germany by a, a wife and a husband who are immigrants from Turkey. So, this interaction between larger companies and the startups, and the whole idea of open innovation. And so the way that you run a company is very different. And and because of the power of computers, now, instead of 70% of the research being R&D being done in companies at least 25,000 people, now it's only like 30%. And so much more of the research is being done by companies with only 500, or only 1,000 people, or only 100. Well, Sony and Panasonic are still operating in the skill sets learned in the analog age. They have not really figured out the digital age. And I'll give you one example. They use computers to cut costs, do the same tasks they were always doing, but just automate them and cut costs. But the whole point about information technology is you can do things you never did before. So, one of my favorite examples is a fellow, a Finnish fellow I met in Japan who had worked, he's getting his PhD. Uh, in Japan. He'd worked as a consultant for a supermarket, a a, a small chain of of stores, and what he found out was that these small stores, like convenience stores, were using information technology to track the sale of every purchase, not only for inventory control, which costs costs, but to figure out customer buying patterns. And one of the things they discovered, which we could never could have discovered without software and the right program, is that the same people on a Friday night who were buying Pampers also bought beer. Now the notion of putting beer next to Pampers in the store was so antithetical. Alcohol with babies, oh no, no, people will freak out. But the act what happened was these parents with newborns had to stay home and take care of the baby. They wanted to plop in a VCR, this is a VCR era story, plop it and watch a movie on the TV and have some beer. And so they pick up the Pampers, pick up the beer, and they so what they did is now move the Pampers next to the beer and, and the sales skyrocketed. Now, the idea of using technology to change what you do in every UPS truck, there is a sensor which checks all kinds of things in terms of heat, stress, metal stress, et cetera, which you do with artificial intelligence. And as a result, it, they notice that, they can't tell what's gonna break down, but they notice there's certain symptoms in the truck before you it breaks down. Heat goes this, this goes that. And so when you start hearing these symptoms, you instead of having the truck delivery, you have it stop, someone goes out, gets the truck, shifts the packages and you get the packages there on time, instead of, oh, the truck breaks down, then we got to send someone out, the packages are late, customers are are upset, blah, blah. And so Japanese companies, even very, very big Japanese companies have really not used all this incredible technology to be able to do new tasks that they never could have been done before at any cost. They've just taken the same tasks and try to cut their costs. The other social change technology has meant, this is a very long answer to a short question, but you can see I get wrapped up in these things. I just think it's cool stuff, really cool stuff. So if you were a new company trying to get into a market, you had to use the traditional distribution center, which was controlled by the big boys. And so it was very, very hard to get off the ground. Well, now one of the blessings of of information technology is e-commerce. So here you have Rocket know, founded by this Harvard-educated MBA, right? which which sells the products of about 40 50,000 50, small and medium companies who reach markets they never could have reached before in the traditional distribution system because they're using e-commerce <clears throat> and there are companies that were selling one company uh it was, was wraps up the interaction interrelation between generational change and technology so as a furniture maker and its sales were about uh, a million dollars a year. And the founder died and his kids took it over. Father never believed in e-commerce. He hated e-commerce, didn't understand it, made no sense to him. Once he died, the kids took it over. They went on Rakuten and other sites. 16 years later, their sales were not 1 million, but $160 million because of e-commerce. It never could have happened without e-commerce, not only as a technology, but as a social institution, which allowed new companies to bypass the traditional gatekeepers of the old distribution system. All of these wholesalers and retailers and stuff. And so allowed new companies to get off the ground. So there are so technology creates economic changes, it creates social changes, and the companies that do not know how to use it to change the way that they operate are gonna fall by the wayside And one of the things that's allowed is that new companies which have better ideas and use e-commerce are being able to take away market share from some of these older companies that haven't changed their ways. And so the the bargaining power impact, all all sorts of impacts that that technology has. And so, and as you see that, that integrates itself with generation because which generation is much much more eager to go after these technologies, understands them, grew up with them, it's part of their life. And so these mega trends uh, interact and that's what makes them very, very powerful.
1: And that leads nicely to the final mega trend, which is entrepreneurship, which has also been an undertone for pretty much all of the other mega trends as well. But could you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. what role you think entrepreneurship will play in shooting sure, the- Japan's future?
0: Now, these mega trends have impacts outside of entrepreneurship. The reason I got into it is I was to investigate whether internally within Japan there were indigenous trends that would help it become more entrepreneurial like it used to be. If it were simply a matter of grafting onto Japan, American practices, it would never work. I'm not a believer that people should, uh, this notion of adopt the American system. The American model—I don't believe in that. In fact, there are lots of parts of the American model that don't work. So I, I think every country needs to learn from all over the place. And one thing Japan has been very good at historically is learning from others and then adapting things to its own purposes. So the mega—these other mega trends—I came to to realize: oh, there are a number of trends which allow more entrepreneurship. One is the general trend—the general generational trend makes people both more eager and able to try to become an entrepreneur because they want to, but also the labor market has become more fluid. They are less afraid that if they take this job and it fails, they won't be able to get another good job. It's not true of the majority, but you know, in countries that we consider very entrepreneurial, it's maybe 4%, 5% of the adult population, which actually creates another a company, and then another several percent who work for them. In Japan, we're talking about 2% rather than 4%. Well, it's twice, it's half the amount, but we're not talking about a very large share of the population. So if you could even increase by 1% to 2% the percentage of adults who are willing to start a company and those who are willing to work for it, you'd have a very, very big, very, very big uh, change. And so the changes in the labor market has made it a more feasible choice. People's desire to do something interesting with their lives and having gone grown up in an affluent society, people from graduate schools, from prestigious schools like K.O. When in the past would have gone to government or some big corporation. Now they're thinking about an entrepreneurship. I met a guy who's himself a former entrepreneur and a former uh, funder of entrepreneurs. named I mean, Kurosaka, who teaches at K.O. And he brought in an entrepreneur, a Japanese entrepreneur, with a contest that is class of, of 100. They form 20 teams of five each for a business plan. And the entrepreneur said, the company that, the people with the best plan, I will fund your project. Well, it ended up, he thought three of them were good and three of them he wanted to fund. And the professor asked at the end of the class, how many people would consider either becoming an entrepreneur or working for one upon graduating? Half the class raised its hand. Now, okay, they're not going to do it. They're not gonna do it, most of them, but that's okay. But suppose 5% of them did it or 10% of them did it. Well, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. And if they succeed, that creates a demonstration effect. You get companies that, another company I know um, that uh, founded by American and Japanese together, 10 years ago, they couldn't hire enough people. this year they get 3000 applications per year. And a lot of their employees are women, including their their managers, because people want to try something new. Now it's not only young people, you get people who are say in their late 40s and their kids are grown up and they have come to work for them from big companies. And you ask them, why do they come? And they said, because I've only got 10 more years or so to finally do something interesting in my career. And I want to build something. I want to create something. There are surveys of MBAs. One person did a survey comparing MBA students in Japan, United States, France, India on attitudes like, I like to have my own idea and fight against others to make it come true. I'm willing to take a chance to, to do this. Uh, I don't mind being the only person with this idea. I love to create things. I love to see my ideas turn into reality. These sorts of ideas are very classic, entrepreneurial kinds of mindsets, the MBAs in the United States and Japan were closer to each other in answering these questions than either country was to either France or India. And the idea that there's this big cultural block to entrepreneurship in Japan, no, it's that traditionally the risks of failure, the penalty for failure has been so high and the rewards for success if you look at Japan versus Korea and the number of, say, the richest 50 people in Japan and the richest 50 people in Korea, many more of the latter in Korea are actually self-made men, mostly men, not women, or a couple. And so in Japan, it's it's far and few and far between. So the risk-reward ratio is very, very different. The biggest, the two biggest obstacles historically to entrepreneurship, one is recruiting people, and that's beginning to change a lot. The second one is getting finance, And that is not changing. That's a very, very big obstacle. The banks are very, just don't wanna to lend to people with whom they don't have a long relationship. It's like, we won't hire you to get experience. Well, how to get experience? Well, someone's gonna hire you, but they won't hire you, you know? And and so you keep, we won't we won't lend you money to, to get big, but you can't get big unless you lend you money. And if you start off too small, you're gonna fail. And the track record shows that. So that, to me, is the the lack of change in the financial system is the biggest obstacle. The other issue is managerial skill. You've got all kinds of people who are visionaries, but they don't know anything about how to run a company. One of the highlights of my career was getting to interview Michael Dell. And um, I went down to Austin. Now, this shows the bad side of of, uh, globalization is that, I, you know, I never had Texas barbecue, and uh, I never went to a country western bar in in Texas or any place else for that matter. And they said, oh, this is a very famous one on 6th Street in Congress in in Austin. I went there. It was a Starbucks. It turned into a Starbucks. So that's the downside. But getting back to Michael Dell, this guy was a visionary. He created this company, but he almost lost it. He almost trashed it three times because he didn't know how to manage. He knew strategy, but he didn't know managerial nuts and bolts. He hired an MBA from Harvard, who had been at, worked at a 500, Fortune 500 company. Nobody knows his name. Nobody hears about him, but he made him chief of operating officer. This guy had no vision, but he knew how to manage. He said, it took the both of us to make this company a success. I never could have done it by myself. Okay, so here you have all these people with vision who wanna start companies. <clears throat> and what they end up doing is that they hire as managers People who have some experience in a larger company, who've been there at least seven or eight or ten years, have gotten to the level of say at least cacho. So they know something about how the business runs. They know some how to manage people, and they come. And so more of these cachos, they hit, they they, they go there, and they say, okay, they're will be willing to be hired. They're going to go and they'll teach the visionary how to actually manage the company. And in one case, it's a, it's a. Uh, called Roxul, it's, a, it's an entrepreneurial company. And uh, the guy who founded it at his age 23, he had no experience in a big company. And he had this tremendous turnover, 40% of his people would leave every year. He didn't know how to solve it. So he said, I hired some veterans who were smarter than me. I said, you mean you guys in their 50s? He goes, oh no, no, guys in their 30s. And they within one year, they turned around. And the problem was that the people who joined his company did not join his company because it paid the most. They joined it because of its mission how it was going to change japan it was it was they were doing something bigger than themselves in a company that was bigger than itself and he was not sort of encouraging them by talking about the mission and what their their job how their job related to the mission and these people came there and they did it now that works with, with the type of people he was employing their age level their attitudes whatever and the problem i say on the side of women is so if you don't get to become, instead of become a Cacho at age 30, you don't get it until you're 38, you're you you're not only much less likely to start your own company, you're also less likely to leave that company and then get hired by somebody else. So a lot of people, women are leaving earlier because then they can have these opportunities. So you have more people who'd like to become entrepreneurs if they if they thought were realistic. You have more entrepreneurs who are showing success than ever before, hardly enough. A, a, you know, a drop in the ocean compared to what Japan could have, but still more. They're becoming more popular in the press. People are mostly thinking about Silicon Valley types, but it's a very unglamorous type as well that Japan needs. But still demonstration projects that it can be done are going on, the ability to hire managers, It'll have people who were willing to, to try it out, and work for you, e-commerce, which allows you to find markets So a lot of the traditional obstacles to starting a new company have really been lessened a great deal. The single biggest obstacle that remains is finance. And if you don't get enough finance at the start, you won't start off big enough. And if you don't start off big enough, you're much more likely going to fail. And so finance is really the biggest uh, remaining remaining obstacle. But unless Japan finds a way around that and deals with it, then it's not going to revive entrepreneurship. If it doesn't revive entrepreneurship, the overall economy, I don't think, is going to do an awful lot.
1: Right. So there's a real
0: potential here. That's very, very exciting. And uh, Japan has an opportunity. And uh, we'll see if it if it has a potential that didn't exist ten or twenty or thirty years ago. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it will happen. There's certainly no guarantees. If business as usual, it won't succeed. But business as usual is sort of coming apart anyway. So I think. The field is opening up.
1: It's easy to see, it's easy for people to fall into the trap of thinking that these changes are inevitable, but there are a lot of structural issues that need to be addressed to make these things or, possible. Or the other,
0: other problem is the f- fatalism of saying it can't be done, she got the good it's never going to happen. And excess fatalism is just as corrosive as irrational exuberance. One of the biggest obstacles to doing what needs to be done is the feeling. We tried several times, it failed. We thought Koizumi was gonna do it, he failed. We thought the Democratic Party of Japan was gonna do it, they failed. Abe made always promises, we lost our hearts to him, he didn't do it. And so there's fatalism. And one of the purposes of the book is to show no, Japan has done it before, there are real things happening that make it possible. And it really gets into the level then of politics, which is which is lagging behind these, these other societal changes.
1: Yeah, either way thinking about it in terms of, oh, it'll happen anyway. We just have to wait it out or having that fatalism. You are washing your hands of responsibility when in reality, everybody kind of needs to proactively try to make these changes happen if we want them to actually take root.
0: Absolutely. And part of that process is just having, you know, this kind of discussion and and again, technology, when you think of your podcast, you think of all on LinkedIn, all of these groups with thousands of people of, who are getting to discuss it with other like-minded people across countries, sharing ideas. That's how ideas spread and grow and, and become embedded in society. Mm -hmm. So there's, this is the social media here can play a very positive role, I think.
1: Well, thank you so much for your time today. Was there anything that we kind of skipped over that you wanted to address or anything we forgot to cover?
0: Nah. We can go on for 17 hours, but (laughs) I think we've covered what we need to cover what your listeners have tolerance for.
1: All right. Perfect. Well, um, hopefully we'll get your book soon as well, but I'll at least definitely link up to that article that you wrote about foreign direct investment that actually came up in a previous conversation as well. So I'll be sure to put that as a link in the description, as well as other places you can find Richard Katz and his writing. So thank you so much.
0: Great. Thank you.
1: that you enjoyed today's conversation and please be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode to learn more about Richard Katz and his writing about Japan as well as to stay up to date on the book that he's working on now. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the perspectives and information shared in the podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using and also leave a rating and review if you enjoy the podcast. You can also check out the podcast's new coffee page if you want to help keep me well caffeinated and making content as always feel free to email me at business japan at gmail.com if you have any other questions comments or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics i'd love to hear from you directly so if you'd like to leave a voice message you can find a link to do that in the description as well but for now remember that the more you learn the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities japan has to offer you until next time mata kondo